come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't lock up the hall. For he who gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside, and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are a-changing. These words were written by a great philosopher just over 50 years ago. His attempt in writing them was to speak to the change he saw happening around him on a daily basis, to create a mantra for which people could rally around and use to express their current circumstances. That philosopher, of course, was Bob Dylan. And, if you don't know, he wrote these words back in 1964. For his song, The Times, They Are a-Changin'. Arguably one of the greatest songs ever written and recorded. You might be wondering why I chose to introduce Mr. Dylan as a philosopher instead of as a musician. Well, it's because I was listening to this song a few months ago. It was incredible how applicable these words are to our world today, even though they were written in a time most of us have no recollection of. Sometimes, an artist creates something so profound that it reaches us on a deeper level. Sometimes, it ends up being emblematic of our species. I think Mr. Dylan belongs in that category, and that's why I chose to introduce him as a philosopher. Our times are indeed changing. We are witnessing the birth of a new generation out into the wilderness and onto the political scene. And, just like any birth, sometimes it's messy, awkward, and extraordinarily painful. However, when everything is said and done, we hope we're better off. This will be the topic for our discussion today, and of our first episode of Naples Ultra. So, without further delay, it is my pleasure and honor to welcome you to the first edition of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. So, if you're wondering just what the heck a Naples Ultra is, you're probably not alone. So, let me take these first opening moments to describe who we are and what our goal here is. First off, a little bit about myself. I'm a guy who's been passionate about politics virtually his entire life. To me, politics are the stories of our societies. Not only that, but politics also offers us a roadmap to improving and changing our society, and hopefully for the betterment of our welfare. My own political identity has evolved throughout the years, and will undoubtedly continue to evolve in the coming years. With that being said, though, I'm old enough to know the bedrock issues which my own identity are based off of. As this show continues, we will certainly be discussing some of those issues. In any case, I want to divert from that and outline the goals for this show and how it came about. One of the things I've grown so tired of is the factionalism and manufactured outrage I see in so many political talk shows, media outlets, and assumed journalists. 
I'm so tired of stories that boil down to, uh, uh, look at this thing, look at it, how angry does it make you? Don't you just want to post it all over social media and maybe send a few people to our site? It doesn't matter how you choose to approach the politics of our society. No camp is innocent of this. And this dynamic has basically turned political journalism into a game of who can manufacture the most outrage and harness it to make the most money. Issues are never dealt with any type of measure, foresight, or deep analysis that our complicated world needs. I feel this does a disservice to all of us. I was finished complaining about the lack of deep analysis in our political media, so I set out to do what I could to remedy it. Of course, I am human. I have my own hot-button issues, which when presented to me, I will throw all caution and reason to the wind. However, if something like that occurs on this show, I want you, the listening audience, to keep me accountable and call me out on it. So, that brings us to the first rule of the show. Rule number one. The world is a complicated place. Let's treat it as such. Now, linking back to that first point, one of the byproducts of this type of political media means all issues are treated and explained with the utmost simplicity, which, in the end, amounts to the viewer being treated little more than a child. Spoon-fed philosophies and ideology. This is not who you are, dear listener. And that brings me to the second goal of the show. Treat your audience like the intelligent and serious adults that they are. Again, if I don't follow this rule, I hope you will all keep me accountable. Now, I have one last rule. And once again, it's born out of the simplicity of our current political media. Now, every issue is treated like there are only two options on how to address it. And one of these options is divine inspiration delivered by the gods of morality itself, while the other would be the second coming of Gog and Magog, if we were to implement it. It seems that in today's media, it doesn't matter what the actual policy is. All that matters is which lens you look at it through. So outside its actual merits, it will either be lauded or scorned, depending on the lens. Therefore, my final rule is this. The world is rarely black and white, but instead, a whole lot of gray. So let's avoid polarizing ourselves over various shades of gray. Now, before we get to the meat of our subject matter, I want to address one more thing. Socrates, he's one of my favorite philosophers of all time. In fact, he's right up there next to Bob Dylan. Crazy world. Anyway, despite the fact Socrates never wrote anything down and didn't really have an overarching philosophical view, what he did do was never take anything for granted and never relent in his quest for the truth of the fundamental bedrocks of our society. He tried to discover the true meaning of justice, piety, courage, and other values of our society simply by asking questions. He started from a position of absolute ignorance in regards to these concepts and tried to discover the truth by asking questions 
those who were considered authorities in these arenas. For example, in one dialogue, Socrates tried to ascertain what courage is by talking to some soldiers. The answers Socrates received were almost never good enough for his own criteria, so he would continue to question his subjects until they either admitted they were just as ignorant as Socrates, or until they got so pissed off that they just up and left. My point here is this. I personally believe we could do with some Socratic questioning in our times, to no longer assume that we know the bedrock of these ideas and of these concepts, but to question them and turn them over in our heads, discuss them, and hopefully come just a little bit closer to the truth. So, while this isn't a formal rule of the show, it's a philosophy I will be practicing and encourage you to practice as well. That is, don't be afraid of the questions. Ask them. I know questioning can be dangerous. I mean, they put Socrates to death for questioning. But let's not make the same mistake in our society and send Socratic values to the gallows. With that, we are at the end of our rules for the show, both official and unofficial. But before I get to the topic, I do want to say this. I, of course, have my own opinions of how society should be constructed and run. And you will, of course, hear some of those ideas throughout the course of the show. However, that doesn't mean I believe your ideas are evil and wrong. At the end of every show, whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I want to leave you with something in your head that you can really chew on, so to speak. Something that you can turn over a couple of times during the course of the week and look at from different angles. Then, come back next week with some interesting feedback. I believe the greatest contribution anyone can make to their society is to become a free and independent thinker. And that's ultimately what I hope to accomplish with this show, the creation of independent thinkers. Now, it's time to exit the ancient Greek philosophers of old and return to our present time frame. The reason I picked Bob Dylan's song to anchor this episode is because I feel 2015 has been a very transformative year and will continue into that vein well into 2016. I feel that this year may be the year we look back on and say, wow, the 21st century is finally getting rolling. So, what's the major cause of this change? Well, as I stated before, we are birthing a new generation onto the political scene. For the first time, we are seeing large numbers of people from my generation moving out into the world and trying to affect change. It hasn't always been pretty or even effective, but millennials are waking up and trying to put their stamp on society, just as every generation has done before it. Just for a bit of background, I'm 26, which labels me towards, I think, the older generation of millennials, a broad category of people I'm labeling from ages 18 to 30. 
The first time I remember when our generation had an impact on the political system was with the election of Barack Obama in 2008. I would have been 19 years old at the time when breaking down the demographics of voters in that particular election, people aged 18 to 30 voted for Obama 66% over McCain, while people aged 40 and higher voted for McCain 52% to 48%. So what, you might say, younger voters have always voted for left-leaning candidates over right-leaning ones, something I certainly agree with. While I don't consider the influx of young voters as the main reason for Obama's victory, the main reason was most likely the fact the previous Republican president was extremely unpopular and had ruled the country for eight years. So he certainly rode a wave of change into power in that regard. Regardless, though, it was a huge moment, especially for younger people like me, who got to witness the first election of a non-white president and who had last been 11 years old when there was a Democratic president in the White House. And when you're 11 years old, who the president is and what he does couldn't register lower on your radar. So most of us had no experience, really, in what it was like to have a left-leaning president in the White House. My point here is this. While I don't believe that millennials were the reason for change, for the first time in our generation, we felt like we were a part of that change. Fast forward to 2012, when Obama was re-elected. An interesting election, as generally speaking, the president receives an increased mandate for a second term, more votes, and a higher electoral college count. For Obama, that was not the case. His mandate was decreased by about 3.5 million votes. Not that it mattered a huge deal, he still comfortably defeated Mitt Romney by about 5 million votes. However, I think it's worth asking the question why Obama had a decreased mandate. The fact is, he was, and still is, in a lot of people's minds, a disappointing president, and accomplished little of what he set out to do while running for office in 2008. While it's certainly not entirely his fault, as the American political system is a Byzantine system full of checks and balances that make it extremely difficult to pass legislation, especially controversial legislation. With that being said, he certainly didn't make use of the full spectrum of resources available to him. So, many in my generation who didn't see Obama enact the change they wanted lay dormant for that year and several years to come. Fast forward to 2015, where the numbers of millennials becoming politically conscious is ever-increasing. As well, the number of millennials entering the pool of voters is ever-increasing. Now, we are beginning to see some wild events taking place. Let's start at the beginning of the year, in January, 
when Greece underwent a major election, a pivotal moment in the world considering that Greece's economic woes are tied to the rest of the European Union and, in a larger extent, the rest of the world. The world was shocked when, in this election, Alexis Tsipras led his party, Syriza, to a stunning victory. I just want to take a quick second here and apologize in case I mispronounced any of those Greek names. In any case, Alexis was rocketed into power with an incredible mandate, a party which had never held power before and was in fact a coalition of smaller parties unified under one banner was brought together and won a near majority in a parliamentary system which has proportional representation. This is an incredible political accomplishment and had profound effects for the country and the world. His term of office was certainly a checkered one, considering the fact he held another election this year, after his coalition looked like it was starting to fray, but the fact he was able to get there at all was an astounding achievement, which was fueled by thousands of unemployed and beleaguered Greek youths who flocked to the Tsaritsa banner in ways that we had never seen before. Editor's Note For those of you who are more interested in the wonky side of politics and would like to know how the nuts and bolts of a democratically elected system actually work, at the end of the show, I have included an explanation of how parliamentary systems of government work and how congressional systems of government work and a comparison and a contrasting statement for each and every one. So it's a bit dry. That's why I removed it from this section of the show to keep it from getting bogged down. So without further ado, let's get back to it. Moving forward to May of this year, where two things happened, one whose dramatic effects were felt immediately, and the other whose dramatic effects took some time to realize. The first of these events was the election in the Canadian province I now live, Alberta. The second was the general election in the United Kingdom. The Alberta election was actually pretty crazy in the sense that it managed to gather international press, which is pretty rare for not even a general election in Canada, but a provincial one. This was due to two things. One, the shocking nature of it. And second, the international status that Alberta has. There's no question about it. Alberta does have a reputation. It has a reputation for kind of being like the Texas of Canada, except for the fact that in the winter it pretty much becomes an apocalyptic hellscape. But Alberta is known throughout the world for one thing, really. Well, maybe two. It's beef and it's oil sands. A huge component of the economic engine of Canada, the oil sands do receive a ton of negative international attention for the way in which the oil is extracted and moved. 
This, and a number of other factors, including its extremely conservative nature, led Alberta to be viewed rather unfavorably on the international stage. Having actually lived in this province, though, I would like to say a lot of the conceptions people have of Alberta are very mistaken. With the exception of its horrific winters, Alberta is a great place to live and work and is full of awesome, amazing people. I digress. Back to the story. Alberta had been led by a conservative government for almost 43 years. Incredible amount of time. A huge chunk of the population had never known what it was like to live with another government. That all changed in May of this year when a combination of missteps and gaffes from the conservative government, as well as a huge desire for change, allowed Rachel Notley and her new Democratic Party to step into that gap and be vaulted into the position of government for the first time in its history. For those of you who don't know, the NDP, or the New Democratic Party, is a party which occupies a political space that is to the left of the liberals. They are a social democratic party, a party which has no American equivalent, however would be equivalent to the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. To put this into perspective, it would be like if Bernie Sanders created a new party and won in Texas. It would be like if you reverse the political spectrum, it would be like the UKIP party, the UK Independence Party in the United Kingdom, sweeping into power in Scotland, or something along those lines. It was a wild moment, no question about it. The face of Alberta was changing, and it was being fueled in large part due to the huge numbers of younger people moving to that province in order to find work and a better life. Moving across the pond to our beloved friends and cousins in the United Kingdom, who were having almost at the exact same time their own general election. This election was Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron's second term. He had won with a minority government in 2010, and in 2015 he was ready for re-election. His main opponent was Ed Miliband and the Labour Party. Ed Miliband had never run in a general election before, but he managed to win the Labour leadership election in an extremely tight race against his brother, actually, David Miliband. So here we have this Miliband-Cameron struggle for the Prime Minister's office in one of the most august countries the world's ever known, the United Kingdom. So... What happened? Well, Ed went down to defeat big time. The Conservatives, on the other hand, managed to gain their first majority government in decades. While I will say that I feel the narrative of Labour's defeat is overstated, considering the fact that Labour actually gained votes over their previous outing, the reason Labour was perceived to have lost so badly was because in the polls leading up to the election, it looked like they were doing a lot better than they actually were. 
in the polls running up to the election, it looked like Labour was either leading or in an extremely competitive, tight race. In a reversal of fortune, however, Labour went down on election night to a surprising defeat instead of a resounding victory. So you might be saying, yeah, Spencer, where's your change narrative now, huh? To which I say, bear with me. This journey does have a destination. A huge portion of the blame for this defeat was foisted on the hands of Ed Miliband. And quite rightly so, I believe. The leader of the party is a huge aspect of it. The leader is who most people vote for, I would say, as they will be the ones running the country. Ed Miliband was flat, uncharismatic, and had a great deal of difficulty getting his point across in a convincing manner. It was clear that labor itself needed a change. See, I told you we were going somewhere. Immediately after his defeat, Ed resigned and a labor leadership contest was held. Let me admit to a little bit of bias here, because I thought this labor leadership contest was one of the most fascinating political events I had had the chance to witness in a long, long time. The contest involved three candidates at first, Liz Kendall, Andy Burnham, and Yvette Cooper. All of these people looked and felt like stereotypical politicians, regurgitated well-rehearsed talking points, wait for applause, and then continue into next regurgitated talking point. They were almost indistinguishable from Ed Miliband. However, just on the eve of the nomination deadline, in strides Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy just scraped together enough nominations from members of parliament to make it into the contest. In fact, most of the MPs who nominated him didn't even support him, but rather nominated him to broaden the debate. Labeled with 100 to 1 odds, Jeremy Corbyn had entered the labor leadership contest. So, just who is Jeremy Corbyn? Because unless you live in the United Kingdom, or are a nerd like I am, you probably don't know who he is. Jeremy is the MP for Islington North, and of course is currently a member of the Labour Party. He has been the MP for this riding for an astounding amount of time, since 1983. During his over 30 years, however... Jeremy didn't even get a whiff of power when he sat in the house. Relegated to the back benches, Jeremy made a name for himself for being one of the most rebellious MPs in the Labour caucus and earning a record for breaking ranks with his party so many times. Jeremy is also known for being on the far left of the political spectrum and deeply embedded in Labour's socialist roots. During his 30 years in Parliament, Jeremy has promoted numerous controversial policies and made many provocative statements. But you know what they say, every dog has his day. 
and Jeremy certainly got his. When Jeremy first introduced himself up there on the labor leadership debate stage, it was clear one of those people up on the stage was not like the others. While the other candidates spoke in platitudes, Jeremy spoke directly. While other candidates would shy away from difficult questions, Jeremy would tackle them in a cogent manner. He was a human being on a stage full of robots, and Labour was tired of voting for robots. Jeremy was a breath of fresh air, so Labour took a gamble on him, and it was a huge gamble. Regardless of how big a gamble Jeremy was, though, he got 60% of the vote in the labor leadership contest, the highest any labor leader has ever received. Suddenly, this 100 to 1 long shot had built up the momentum of his campaign until the point where it seemed inevitable. You won't be surprised to hear, though, that a main factor of his success was reenfranchising young voters who had become disenfranchised with the political system. He reached out to them and said, you do have a voice, even though you think you've been voiceless for so long. And now, he's a leader of the opposition. It's certainly been a rocky start for him, no question about that. But this subject in and of itself will be a show sometime in the near future. For now, though, I just want to look at one more political event that happened this year. And that is the general election here in Canada. In Canada, we had been ruled over by a conservative prime minister for about nine years, a man by the name of Stephen Harper, an extremely polarizing prime minister, to say the least. Harper had docked up a lot of anti-Harper sentiment by riding roughshod over a lot of what people felt were core Canadian values. He was aloof, unfriendly, cold, and oftentimes disregarded a huge majority of the population because of the fact he didn't consider them in his base. His base, on the other hand, was stable, loyal, and would continue voting for him no matter what. This gave him a huge advantage because the left, the so-called left, in Canadian politics is split between two parties, the Liberals and the New Democratic Party. While anyone who leaned right on the political spectrum only had one choice, the Conservatives. And due to the nature of our electoral system, it heavily favored the Conservatives and they ended up winning a string of three electoral victories. Q, the 2015 election. It was clear at the start victory could have belonged to any of the three parties. The Conservatives, the Liberals, and the New Democrats were all hovering around 30 percentage points. As time went on, every one of those three parties had their moment in the sun. But only one party could have that moment when it truly counted, and that was the Liberals. Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party swept in with a majority mandate, 
something most people at the start of the election deemed as impossible. It was a stunning accomplishment, coming from third place all the way to ruling the government with a majority mandate has never been seen before in Canadian politics. In comparison to the leader of the New Democrats, Thomas Mulcair, and Stephen Harper, Trudeau did seem like an intellectual lightweight. It didn't matter, though, because with a series of progressive and bold proclamations in their platform, the Liberal Party was able to outflank the NDP, who had stumbled in the election and was able to gain a huge percentage of their votes and ended up taking a total of one million from the new Democratic Party. However, just one million votes from the opposing party is not enough to take a majority government, especially when you look at the conservative vote count, which only shrunk less than 1% over its previous vote count in the 2011 election, which was enough to deliver them a majority parliament. So what happened? Justin got more people to vote. Over the previous electoral count the Liberal Party received in 2011, they had gained about 4 million votes. As stated before, 1 million came from the New Democratic Party, whereas the rest of those 3 million votes came from disenfranchised voters and young voters voting for the first time. In an incredible increase of voter turnout, 61.1% in 2011 in comparison to 69.1% in 2015, the Liberals had inspired swaths of new voters to not just enter the political system, but to vote for him. This time, there is absolutely no question that young people were the harbingers of change in this country. Considering that Justin Trudeau won the millennial demographic with an incredible 70% of the vote, a crushing amount in a multi-party system. So, what's the story here? What's the underlying factor that led to all these transformations? One word, inspiration. Inspiration is the chief political motivator for millennials to get involved in the political system. This is why Ed Miliband couldn't create a wave of change. He could barely inspire even the most motivated labor voter. And I think this is in play for Canadian NDP leader Thomas Mulcair, who suffered from a similar issue in our election here. Look at the narrative outside of this, though. Alexis inspired people in Greece to care about their poor citizens again. Notley inspired people to think about this province differently and reflect those thoughts in the form of radical change. Jeremy inspired those who didn't have a voice in politics to go out and instead exercise that voice. And Justin inspired Canadians with a return to values which make us proud to be members. Of this country. This generation is ready for the world to change, and we can't wait to get out of the starting gate. All we need is just a little bit of inspiration, and with that, great things can be achieved. 
And with that, it brings us to the end of our main topic. But before we conclude, allow me one brief personal thought to leave you with. The point of this show wasn't to place value judgments on the changes that are happening, but rather to show that millennials are finally getting politically engaged, and in some cases creating tremendous forces for change. We are going through a generational changing of the guard. The baby boomers are now retiring and giving up their positions of influence and power, while the Generation Xers are taking their place. This means one thing. We're on deck, people. We are the future leaders and influencers of the world, and we are starting to get a first taste of that role. We have only a limited amount of time to figure out how to be great world leaders. And, as anyone will tell you, your first experience in a given environment will have a powerful impact on how you will react within it in the future. If we want to be great world leaders, we need to understand how the world got to the place it is now, how it functions currently, and how to plan for its future. Let's start preparing for that future now, rather than waiting for it to happen. When it does come to actual value judgments on the type of change we have been affecting, I will say that our record has been mixed, and in some cases, disastrous. One of those cases will be the subject of next week's show, The Paradox of Free Speech. Welcome, everybody, to the second segment of Na Plus Ultra. I hope you enjoyed the first, but uh, actually, in the second segment, we don't have much going on, at least for the first show. And let me tell you why. I'm hoping to divide this show into two parts. The first being a discussion about a certain topic, and the next segment will be listener submissions. I say submissions because I want all types of feedback. If you have a topic you want to discuss in this part of the show, let me know. If you have a question to ask, please ask it. If you have something you want to say about the topic in the first part of the show, something you want to add, or something you thought I was misplaced on, send that in as well. It's all fair game in this section. However, considering it's my first show, I don't have anything prepared for this segment. So let's lay the groundwork for this week. If you have any submissions, please send them to my email address, which is spencer at npupodcast.com or through my Facebook page, which is William Spencer Downing. In the future, I will be setting up a personal email for this podcast, as well as a Twitter account to receive submissions that way. At the end of every show, though, I want to ask you a question. A question I hope you'll think about and respond to. So I can read said questions next week. My question this week is Socratic in nature, to keep with uh, what we are talking about earlier. So, my question is simple. What is justice? With that, I'm going to thank everyone for listening. Now, 
if you'd like to move on to the bonus content for the show, which I alluded to earlier, please stay tuned for my comparison between parliamentary systems of government and congressional systems of government. Welcome, one and all, to what I'm just going to call the bonus content for this particular episode of Naples Ultra. Originally, this was going to be in the middle of the main topic. However, what I thought was going to be a brief digression ended up expanding itself into uh, quite a long digression. So I decided to move it and put it in after the fact. For me... Stuff like this is some of the most interesting stuff in the world, though I know I'm not exactly a majority on that count. Regardless, though, this should give you a little bit of insight as to how different systems in different countries work and how they can yield different results and attitudes. So, without further ado, let's look at the differences between a parliamentary system of government and a congressional system of government. The parliamentary system is predominant in the United Kingdom, Canada, and most of Europe. Well, the congressional system, or republican system, as I've heard it called, is predominant in the United States and many countries in Latin America. The parliamentary system is derived from Britain, and it generally has two houses. However, every country has its own spin on the parliamentary system. There's an upper house and a lower house. The lower house is the most important as it is made up of elected representatives and the upper house is generally chosen from more quote-unquote elite members of society. For example, in Britain, the upper house is called the House of Lords, a place that you're generally born into. In Canada, the upper house is called the Senate, and Senate members are appointed by the Prime Minister. The upper houses generally have varying degrees of importance based on the country and the selection of its members. Here in Canada, the Senate's really basically a joke and just a rubber stamp for legislation coming up from the lower house. Also, as many Canadians believe, an extraordinarily effective waste of taxpayer money. With that being said, I'm not going to focus on this aspect of the parliamentary system, but rather on the lower houses, because these are the houses which are most important for the system to function. And also, from now on, I'm just going to refer to the lower house as the House of Commons, because this is the term I'm most familiar with. The lower house has its members decided through elections, and different systems have different ways of distributing seats in the House of Commons based on those election results. It doesn't matter what democratic system you're in, the results of the voters are interpreted through the lens of the electoral system, and different electoral systems have different ways in representing the will of the people. So, for example, in Britain and Canada, we have what's called the first-past-the-post system. This system divides the country into ridings, 
these are the equivalent of districts in America, and potential members of parliament run in every single one of these ridings, and the candidate with the most votes wins it all. It doesn't matter in your riding if you won by one vote or 10,000 votes. A victory is a victory. This has the effect of amplifying the seat count and thus power of the winning party and other larger parties, while diminishing the power of smaller parties or shutting them out altogether. The first-past-the-post system also has the effect of making regional parties a very real possibility, as you can see in Canada with the Bloc Québécois and the United Kingdom with the Scottish National Party. Despite the fact that these parties' vote counts are relatively low in comparison to the rest of the country, their vote is concentrated in a region and therefore amplifies it. So if your party is a regional party and it only has maybe a million votes, but those million votes are all concentrated in 20 ridings, your regional party is going to likely win those 20 ridings. Compare this to a party which maybe gains 2 million votes, but is running in all 300 ridings of this fictional country. Despite the fact that this party got more votes, due to the fact that its voter support is more diffused throughout the country, they will gain very little seats, or maybe none at all. This is what happened to the UK Independence Party in 2015, winning the third highest vote total, but only securing a handful of seats. So, the two main facts here are that the first-past-the-post system can amplify the winning party to a majority victory without getting the majority number of votes. Generally speaking, in a first-past-the-post system, if you get 40% of the votes, you're guaranteed a majority, and you can achieve a majority with less than that. Also, parties which have concentrated voters in a specific region, such as regional independence parties can use those voters to gain a lot more seats in the House of Commons than they would otherwise be entitled to, based on their vote count. When we look at a country like Greece, on the other hand, and many other European countries, they have elections based off proportional representation. This means that seats in the House of Commons are divided up on the percentage of votes received by said party. So the party who receives 30% of the votes gets 30% of the seats. Usually there's a threshold of a certain percentage you have to achieve in order to get representation, such as 5% or 3%. And again, every country has its own spin on this system. So if we look at Greece once again, their spin is that 250 members of its 300-member parliament are proportionally distributed, while the remaining 50 are automatically awarded to the winning party. Proportional representation has the advantage of delivering a parliament which far more accurately displays the will of the voters, but has the disadvantage of making it more difficult to create a unified parliament which can get things done. To show you what I mean, after the election, the party which has the most seats gets the first crack at forming the government, with the leader of said party becoming the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister must then gain 50% of the House of Commons. This is easy, 
if your party won over 50% of the seats in the election. This is called a majority parliament, when one party owns over 50% of the seats in the House of Commons. If your party does not win 50% of the seats, it must look to other parties for support, and thereby form a coalition with like-minded parties in order to get 50% support. This is called a minority parliament. After the Prime Minister has 50% of the support in the House of Commons, he has gained what's called the confidence of the House, and can now go about forming his cabinet and drafting legislation. This confidence is extremely important to a Prime Minister, because one of the huge differences between the parliamentary system and the congressional system is that nearly all legislation has to come from the Prime Minister and his cabinet. And that legislation must pass the House of Commons. If it does not, then the Prime Minister has lost confidence of the House, and Parliament must be dissolved to make way for another election. There are exceptions to this rule. For example, MPs can draft private members' bills and then present them to the House. Most of the time, these bills are called non-confidence votes, which allows MPs to vote on the bill as they see fit, rather than having to toe the party line. These votes can also be called free votes. Regardless, though, if the government is defeated in a non-confidence vote or free vote, it does not technically lose the confidence of the House and therefore does not have to march off to another election. Just so you know, these non-confidence votes are more of the exception. They are not the rule. During most votes, all of the members of parliament in that particular party will vote together in a unified block. And this is usually to maintain the unity of your party, and if you're the government, the confidence of the House. There are other circumstances in which non-confidence votes can be used, and these are votes on legislation which usually involve heated moral issues, such as gay marriage or abortion. Therefore, MPs can vote their conscience on these hotbed issues and not fear reprisal. British Prime Minister David Cameron also allowed a free vote on the issue of whether or not Britain should go to war with Syria in 2013, a vote which the government lost. But due to the fact it was a free vote or non-confidence vote, no election was held afterwards. An issue which has once again come to a head, and now it looks like this time the parliament will vote with David Cameron and allow airstrikes in Syria. Just as I was putting the final touches on this podcast, I read an article stating that British lawmakers had voted 397 to 223 to authorize airstrikes in Syria. So, there you go. Before moving on to the congressional system, I would like just to mention one thing, and that is, generally speaking... Prime Ministers do not have term limits and can run for as long as they see fit. Canada's longest-serving Prime Minister, the guy who's on our $50 bill, William Lloyd Mackenzie King, served 21 years and 154 days. This Prime Minister actually led us through World War II and was a member of the Liberal Party. But if I ever wanted to do a show that was more historical in nature... I would certainly love to do a show about William Lloyd Mackenzie King because he is hilarious. But that's a topic for another time. Onwards 
to the congressional system. In the congressional system, we once again have two houses, along with an executive called the president to oversee them. All of these offices are elected separately and act far more independently than they do in the parliamentary system. The United States is a prime example for the congressional system as it was invented by their founding fathers, with more than a little bit of inspiration from ancient Rome. So we're going to be focusing on the American system. The lower house in the congressional system is called the House of Representatives, and it is made up with 435 members. This body faces election every two years, so every year that has an even number. The districts for the 435 members are divided up by state population. California, the most populous state, has 53 members in the House of Representatives, in comparison to seven different states, such as Alaska, which only have one member. The elections for the House of Representatives are conducted in a similar manner to the first-past-the-post system. Whoever wins the most votes in their district wins and moves on to become a member of Congress. The major difference here is that who wins in the congressional election has no bearing on who becomes president. A much different story for the parliamentary equivalent, the prime minister. The upper body of Congress is called the Senate. In the Senate, every state gets two senators for a total of 100. Senators are elected on six-year terms, so Senate elections happen sporadically every second year based on which senators have completed their six-year terms in office. The Senate's major function is to act as the balance of power to the lower house, which is comprised of the population of the country. Whereas in the Senate, Alaska has just as much representation as California. Finally, we have the office of the president. The president rules for a four-year term and can run for a second if they so choose. However, two's all I get, unlike a prime minister. The president runs the executive branch of the American government and is also considered to be the face of the nation. Presidential elections are won off a system called the Electoral College. Every state is granted a number of Electoral College votes based off its population for a total of 538 votes. With only a few exceptions, the candidate who wins a state will gain all the Electoral College votes for that state. So, for example, in 2012, Obama won California with 60% of the vote in comparison to Romney's 37%. Therefore, Obama won all of California's 55 votes. Once all the votes are counted, the candidate with the majority of Electoral College votes wins and becomes the president. Now, the major difference between the two systems is how legislation is drafted and passed. As we said before, in the parliamentary system, all legislation comes from the Prime Minister and his cabinet and needs to pass the House of Commons or another election will be held. In the congressional system, legislation can come from anywhere, the House of Representatives, the Senate, or the President, and legislation needs assent from all three offices before becoming law. So, if the House passes legislation, and then it passes the Senate, but the President vetoes the bill, 
then it won't become law. That is, of course, unless the House of Representatives can scrape together a two-thirds majority in order to overturn that veto. Not an easy thing to do, but it has been done. Or, let's say, the president has a bill that he wants to get passed. He must first get approval from the Senate and the House of Representatives in order to pass that bill. If he can't do this, well, too bad for him. There isn't much more he can do besides exert softer forms of pressure and influence in order to pass what he wants. It certainly doesn't mean another election is held. Things also get messier when you take into account the fact that members of Congress do not have to vote alongside the rest of their party. Members of Congress have much more freedom in terms of how they vote than members of Parliament. So, what's the main advantages and disadvantages of these two systems? The main advantage of the parliamentary system is that you can get stuff done. In fact, you have to get what you want done, because if you propose something and it can't get passed, well, time for another election. This gives a prime minister a huge amount of power, much more than a president would have, especially if the parliament in question is a majority, like our liberal majority parliament. Justin can do virtually whatever he wants to do, within, of course, the confines of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, our constitution, drafted by Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father. Interesting point. In the congressional system, power is so diffused that it makes it difficult to get anything done, especially, like I said before, controversial things. This has the advantage of making sure everyone is on board with legislation before it passes. On the flip side, though, there is the disadvantage of having more openings in the system for third parties to exert their influences. That's not to say that there aren't lobbyists and other powerful influences entangled within the parliamentary system. The congressional system is just more vulnerable to them. There is an advantage, though, to the congressional system. And that is to say, in case Hitler or, you know, not exactly Hitler, someone like Hitler were elected, he really couldn't get much done without the approval of the House and Senate. You sometimes hear these people claim that, oh, Obama's like Hitler, he's this horrible dictator, and so on and so forth. Whereas, in reality, Obama has nowhere near the same amount of power that Hitler does. In fact, I can't think of anyone who could probably be further from Hitler than Obama. The guy's certainly got his disadvantages. But, let's be fair, he's, he's not Hitler. That's not to say if we elected Hitler here in Canada, he could just run roughshod over the system. He would have to abide by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms because our previous prime minister has tried to pass laws that are contradictory to our constitution and they always get challenged in court and oftentimes thrown out. But the fact of the matter is we don't elect Hitler in Canada or the United States for that matter. Uh, at least we haven't yet. Generally, though, allowing our Prime Minister the amount of power he does have has been a good thing for our society. So, the ultimate difference, I feel, between these two systems is that the parliamentary system has its power more centralized. 
This has the advantage of making it easier to get legislation passed and affect change, but has the disadvantage of making the power easier to abuse. And if you're stuck with a prime minister you don't like, not much you can do about it until the next election. In the congressional system, however, power is extremely diffused, which makes it difficult to abuse the power you have, but with that diffusion, it makes it difficult to get anything accomplished, and change happens far more slowly. But if a president gets elected that you don't like, so long as your party holds at least one of the lower chambers, they won't be able to get much done anyway. With that, I want to leave you with one final thought. I personally believe the system of government devised by the American founding fathers is nothing short of an incredible accomplishment and pure genius. The vision they had when creating their system was laid out in an extremely clear manner and was executed masterfully. Their logic is without a doubt very defensible. A system of government that all works together to diffuse power and ensure its capabilities never get into the hands of a small group of individuals, or even worse, one individual. Unfortunately, the world we live in is not the world of the Founding Fathers. Remember what the theme of the show was. Change. We live in a world of rapid change, and governments all over are struggling to keep up with this, and none more so than the United States. The nature of its system makes it slow to adapt, while parliamentary systems are certainly not perfect in this regard. Its ease of legislation makes it more prepared to keep up with this change. This is why I personally prefer the parliamentary system over the congressional one. So, that's it. That's all episode one of Naples Ultra has to offer. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it and that you will be joining us next week for our discussion about the conceptions of free speech. I hope you guys will think about some of the issues we discussed today and in due course think about your role within society and how you might affect the political system around you. Until next week though, I hope you guys have a good one and we'll talk very shortly. Thank you.